Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading through the NYRB classics. I'm Kasia. I'm Dylan. Our book this week is The Radiance of the King, written by Kamara Lay and translated from French by James Kirka. It was originally published in 1954. Clarence, a white man, has been shipwrecked on the coast of Africa. Flush with self-importance, he demands to see the king, but the king has just left for the south of his realm. Traveling through an increasingly phantasmagoric landscape in the company of a beggar and two roguish boys, Clarence is gradually stripped of his pretensions until he is sold to the royal harem as a slave. But in the end, Clarence's bewildering journey is the occasion of a revelation as he discovers the image, both shameful and beautiful, of his own humanity in the alien splendor of the king. Our guest this week is writer and translator Frank Wynne. He has translated so many incredible and famous books that instead of us listing them out, I recommend that you just check out his website in the show notes. Welcome to the show. It's an honor to have you on. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. So first off, before we get to talking about the book, we just wanted to know about kind of your path to becoming a translator. Okay. So I suppose like an awful lot of people uh, of my generation, um, it is a complete accident. Um, I, have no, <laughs> I have no qualifications. I do not have a degree in French. Um, I don't agree in anything. I left Ireland when I was 22 to live in France. I had never been to France. I had never been to Paris. I had never actually spoken French because although I studied it in high school, um, back in the 1970s, that did not require you to actually ever speak the language. Um, you just read things and wrote things. So I arrived as effectively, you know, speaking the language that Maupassant wrote in. So nobody had the faint mm. idea what I was talking about and I had no idea what they were talking about either. But I became, I discovered actually that I did have a, a gift for languages. I, I was fluent fairly quickly and I read a lot and was stunned to discover all of the things that I didn't know I didn't know um, in as much as, you know, it is um a bromide that you know only six percent of or five percent of or three percent of books in english uh, or works in translation but the vast majority of things that i was coming across i had never come across before or had ne- and authors i had never heard of um so this was this was something new um and very different to me when i moved to london i ran a bookshop mm-hmm. uh, in the bookshop, I um, happened to stock uh, Bon Dessiné, what the French call, uh, what we now call graphic novels, though we didn't back then. Uh, and through that, because there was no online book selling at the time, there was no online anything at the time, um, I ended up working in, in comics publishing. I started tra- uh, translating graphic novels. Uh, I got to know a number of editors for whom I became what's called a publisher's reader. So the great majority of editors don't read in multiple languages. Most of them barely read in English. Uh, (laughs) And so they send books out and they send you a book and for, you know, 60 bucks or 80 bucks or whatever, you have to provide a digest. They don't really want the synopsis. What they really want is for you to say, this is like this and this is like this and this is why it will definitely work with an English language readership. And for about five years, I read a number of extraordinary books and every single time I wrote a report saying, um, this is a wonderful book, but I don't think, of, uh, to use words that editors the world over use, it's very small, or it's very French, or it's, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and eventually I, I um, said to an editor I was reading for, um, I think this is a good book. 
I think you should probably pursue it, you know, and acquire the rights. And the editor said, okay, well, if I do, would you like to do a sample uh, with a view to translating the whole book, which I wasn't expecting. Uh, I had mm. no idea what you were supposed to be able to do in order to translate literature, but I was certainly fairly sure I wasn't qualified. I did a sample. He was happy with the sample. I translated the book. And then the following novel that I translated was um, Michel Houellebecq's um, Les Particules des Montaires. Um, and that kind of took off and had a life of its own. And so while yeah. it did not make me in any sense famous, um, I mean, it made him famous, but it didn't make me famous. <laughs> but again, editors are lazy. So when they thought to themselves, oh, God, we need a translator from French. Who should we get? Oh, why don't we get whoever did Welbeck, you know? Um, oh, yeah. So I got offered a bit more work and a bit more work. Now, I mean, at this time, I was still, you know, I'd spent the late 1990s um, building the internet. So, um, for, and I apologize for that um, because it, <laughs> it didn't turn out the way we planned. We thought peace and harmony would break out if um, people could just talk to each other. <laughs> This has not proved to be the case. Um, so I was working, you know, for AOL, the European Arm of America Online at the time, building the internet. It must have been a year after um, Atomized, as it was called in Eng England, or the Elementary Particles in, in the United States was published. I was in work and one of my younger colleagues came rushing over to me with a paperback copy of the book and said, oh my God, you really have to read this. It's amazing. And I said, open the book turn to the title page, what does it say? And he had no <laughs> idea that I was translating. I literally... <laughs> I, I, I did my translation in the evening and on weekends and in my free time. And actually, for an awful lot of translators, probably the bulk of translators, that never goes away. You are always mm -hmm. doing other work because, quite literally, in order to survive as a literary translator from translation alone, then to make... The average wage of about um, 30,000, 30, um, you would need to be translating between four and five novels every year, which means you have to be offered at least four or five novels every year. Yeah. Um, now, if some of them are longer and some of them are shorter, then maybe it might be four rather than five. But because it's a taxi meter system, you are paid by the word. You are not paid because this book is really difficult and is going to take you hours and hours of research. No one cares. It's like, we will pay you this much per thousand words. Um, and and even then, you know, as any translator will tell you, they you, you haggle. But I did give up the day job. I decided I would do this full time. It was probably another six, seven years after that before I was sort of living mostly off my earnings as a translator. And I mean, even at stage, I still do other work because almost anything that I know how to do pays me more money than um, translation. Unfortunately, translation is more important to me than all of the other things I know how to do. So um, it's, it's a really bad, vicious circle, really. I think for most creative people like us, we all kind of have that feeling of the yeah. thing we want to do just does not pay nearly as well as the other things that we, we can't we do. Must, yeah. No, it did, it's the same. Look, it is the same for probably 97% of actors and performers and singers and pianists and, you know, you really want to do this, but, you know, uh, unfortunately, that means that you're going to spend a lot of time bussing tables or, in my case, building websites or, you know, whatever. You know. Yeah. Well, we approached you because we were going to be doing a lot of translations this month with the NYRB classics that we're covering. 
And out of all the NYRB classics, you picked The Radiance of the King. So we were wondering what made you decide to choose that book. When people talk about French literature, they are very often talking about literature written by people uh, from France. And even then, they're almost certainly talking about literature written by white people whose um, ancestors also consider themselves mm -hmm. French, etc. What the French call the souche. But actually, uh, the great majority of French-speaking people live nowhere near France. They, you know, I mean, mm. 480 million people in Africa uh, have France as their primary language. Uh, and in, you know, various um, islands, both in uh, the Indian Ocean and obviously in French yeah. Guiana, in, um, in South America and various of the islands of the Caribbean. And Francophone literature, as it's called, was fascinating to me because it allows me access to very different cultures and very different worlds, but through a language that I do speak, although African French has many varieties and the ways in which individual um, Francophone writers use it or have used it um, can vary enormously. I mean, they may choose to write in what is effectively proper French, if, well, actually, I was going to say, if you could call it such a thing, but of course, the Académie Française has a very clear idea of what proper French is, and publishes things every year to tell us what not to do. And so you, on the one hand, you will have authors like that, whose um, French is molded very much in the, as it were, French classical style, but you also have others like Amadou Kuruma, who's, who draws or who drew, he's no longer with us, on the old oral traditions of uh, the cultures in which he was raised in um, the Ivory Coast, or Alain Mabonku, who um, mixes standard French, as it were, very much with uh, the Congolese dialect and with slang and so forth, um, in depicting the country from, from, from which he comes. And again, these were, it wasn't just that I wasn't aware of these authors, I wasn't aware of this entire sweep yeah. of literature that exists. And part of the problem, uh, the same is true, so I also translate from Spanish, and the same is true in Spanish. So basically, if you are not published in Paris, the chances that you will ever be translated are probably 0.1%. Uh -huh. um, if you are not published in Barcelona, the chances that you will be translated are 0.1%. You may be a major novelist in Mexico or Argentina. You may be a major novelist in Algeria or Morocco, uh, Guinea or... Cote d'Ivoire, uh, but you access the rest of the world exactly through the colonial system that has put you in a position where you're writing in French in the first place. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of these things, I mean, I wrote, read um, Le Regard du Roi uh, when I was living in Paris uh, before it was translated. I think before it was translated. I can't remember when it was translated. But I read it together with a lot of other authors who I was reading for the first time and being introduced to cultures about which I knew absolutely nothing. Or if I knew anything, I knew what I knew effectively is filtered through the variety of European and American writers who set novels in Africa and used Africa as mostly as set dressing or as an allegorical notion of evil, or an allegorical notion of uh, nature, or redemption, or whatever. But actually, um, by and large, um, not only was a 
black African not writing this, you were kind of lucky if you met a black African who wasn't going to get shot quite soon. So Kamala Lay, I need to explain. So uh, Lay is Mandinka. So um, the name, as with Asian names, is inverted. Kamala is the um, last name and Lay is the first name. Gotcha. Oh, okay. Is an unusual writer, one of the first uh, Francophone writers. And unattached to the the various movements that you would look at in Franco-African writing of the time, I mean, Kamara is writing uh, at a time after Negritude and, and uh, Senghor have already um, become a prominent element in Franco-African literature, but is in fact not part of that movement. His writing very much has European influences, not least that of Kafka. Mm-hmm. Um, and while Lay is interested in how Africa is seen, both how Africa is seen from within and from without, he is not, or he has no real interest in um, the political structures of negritude, which is to be anti-colonialism, which is to work against what effectively uh, the French colonial oppression um, in Africa did, I mean, both in terms of uh, both politically, but also in terms of education, in terms of the willful destruction of cultures, ethnicities and, and religions in the name of, you know, uh, what Americans would call the white man's burden, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's bring our God to you. So Lay is unusual. Also, there are very few novels. There are only four. And there is a vast gap between them. So the first novel, uh, L'Enfant Noir, um, is effectively straightforwardly pseudo-autobiographical. Yeah. It is based in and around his family, the, his work, the work of his father as, um, uh, as a blacksmith and as a goldsmith, and his unease in a tradition where effectively you were expected to follow directly in the footsteps of your parents to do as they did, and therefore to walk away from that uh, was an unusual thing. Uh, again, we'll talk about titles for this again, but um, so the uh, L'Enfant Noir has been published under two titles, mm-hmm. The African Child and The Dark Child, as though somehow we're afraid of the word black. <laughs> yeah. And again, the word black is very loaded in English, and that is why I, I suspect someone chose not to, um, to use that as a title. Mm-hmm. But it's just as loaded in French. Um, you know, yeah. his L'Enfant Noir is not L'Enfant Sombre or L'Enfant Africain. It is his blackness that is a part of what it yeah. is that, that he's discussing. There's then a leap to um, Le Regard du Roi, The Radiance of the King, which is a very, very different work. I mean, so much so, and we'll talk about this later, that there are people who have argued that he didn't write it. Yeah, we were going to ask you what you thought of that. Um, uh, (laughs) I have have a a nuanced uh, approach, which is that I think it's bullshit. Um, (laughs) um, um, But we'll we'll talk about it in some detail later, because I can completely understand where it comes from. This is why we are dealing with uh, The Radiance of the King, uh, which is possibly the least known francophone uh novel currently still in print Mm. interesting way to put it yeah 
And only in print because the NYRB put it back in. And only in print because the NYRB put it back in print. Precisely that. Well, having gone through all of those biographical details about Kamara, um, when you're working on a translation, how much do you factor in the author's biography? Is that something that you take note of uh, and look at their like larger work? Does it matter? Uh, you might, you might not. It will really depend on the work. Mm. The, the thing is, uh, it's complicated because if you're translating what uh, booksellers call front list, i.e. novels mm-hmm. that have only just been published, the author may not have a backlist yet. Sure. You, may, you may be creating a voice for an author who will go on to be... I mean, when I translated Welbeck, um, uh, one novel had been translated into English. I was unaware of that fact at the time. I knew the novel, but I didn't know it had been translated. Um, but you know, there was no surround. There was no hinterland for me to explore, except for you know, reading his poetry and his essays, or you know, his um, mm-hmm. long about uh, Lovecraft. None of which would have particularly helped me. <laughs> but you know, if someone asked me tomorrow to uh, retranslate Sidin or to translate Post, then that's a different thing. If you are mm-hmm. translating again, you have to have a sense of a why this deserves a new translation or needs sure. a translation, whether there is anything that you can bring to it. But also you have the luxury of looking at the work as a whole and usually looking at the author's canon of work as a whole, um, rather than, you know, if I just translated uh, a second novel by an author from the Ivory Coast, um, but they are his first two novels. So effectively mm-hmm. I have created his his voice um, in English. Um, I can't go back to find anything that he has done before that. And while his his you know occupation and his biography are of interest, they don't act, they they're not likely to influence how I'm going to. I mean, what what is going to influence me? This is particularly true in all translation is a form of cultural appropriation because. People who are translating are very unlikely to come from precisely the same culture as the person who wrote the book. They're either in different centuries or at different times, or they simply come from different cultures and uh, and different areas. And so whether I'm translating uh, a novel from that's set in the 19th century in uh, Bourgogne, or whether I'm translating a novel set in Algeria or in um, the outskirts of Buenos Aires, um, there's quite a lot of there's quite a lot I need to understand over and above the text that's in front of me. Yeah, uh, this may be cultural, it may be linguistic, it may be to do with music, it may be to do with the sound of words and the way in which language is spoken in a particular place. All of that, I believe, it is the role of a translator to take on board and to find. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that all translators also feel that because if you're paid as little as we're being paid you know yeah. and as far as most editors are concerned and, and i suspect a number of readers uh, translation is a garbage in garbage out process you, you <laughs> insert the text into the translator and the translation <laughs> i.e the only possible translation emerges right this is sure. so far from being true that um it's just pointless to say. Um, if you read the same text to a hundred different translators, um, they will produce precise, 
completely different texts. I mean, the basic story will be the same, the characters will be the same, some of the sentences will be similar, but they're unlikely to be the same. The voices in all of them will be the same. Yeah. It is like giving a piece of music to um, a dozen different performers. They perform it, and translation is performance. But similarly, and I've said this uh, before, if you give me a book to translate or a text to translate, it will be different this year than it would have been if I'd done it five years ago or if I did it two years from now, because I am the sum of all of the things that I have read and all of the things that I have experienced. And therefore, there may be things that will have influenced me now that would not have been on my mind if I had been translating the same text five years ago. And again, you know, this is like an actor returning to a role or like um, a performer uh, returning to a song or to a piece of music. Um, they are not going to interpret it in the same way because mm -hmm. they are not the same person, even if the words they are interpreting are the same. Yeah. This book was translated by James Kirkup, who interestingly he was the translator of another African book we covered earlier on the show called An African in Greenland. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, that book is about sort of a black man venturing into a white world. And this book is more about a white man venturing into, you know, the African world in a way. So I thought they provided an interesting compliment to. It's an interesting compliment for him to have had, actually, to be able to do both. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, what Tamara is doing in uh, The Radiance of the King is at least when when he begins, is he is taking Western tropes of African literature. Yeah. Um, he is taking Conrad's Heart of Darkness. He is taking um, Hemingway. He is taking, you know, here comes the white man. I mean, there is this wonderful, you know, very, very early on in the book, you know, here is this white man elbowing his way through a crowd on the public square in the capital of an unnamed country sometime in the 20th century. We don't know this yet, but, you know, he is effectively shipwrecked, penniless, mm -hmm. gambled away on his, all his money, uh, has nothing, but has decided that he shall work in the service of the king. Yeah. His only qualification for this is he's white. <laughs> when, when the beggar first says to him, the king will not see him, will not see just anyone. He says, I am not just anyone. I am a white man. <laughs> and in this, Kamara is effectively taking precisely the tropes that have informed all of what we would call African fiction, though it has nothing to do with Africa. It has to do with largely rich white men who have gone to Africa. I mean, some of them, like Conrad mm -hmm. not, they went as, as jobbing sailors. Um, but they are, you know, of white men who have gone to Africa, looked at it and gone, this is all a bit strange. I can use this to depict strangeness in my novels. I'm not saying that what they did with it or what some of them did with it is not powerful. It is, and it can be, but it has rarely sought um, to make any attempt to understand. I mean, the very fact that we talk about African literature, I mean, good Lord, in, in, in you know, the Ivory Coast alone, and, you know, translating Gauss and previously translating Kuruma, there are 22 major languages. Yeah. Um, you know, and about eight principal cultures. Um, so talking about African literature um, is mm -hmm. not even like, I mean, when we talk about American literature, that, you know, subsumes all sorts of things. Or when we talk about European literature, we're actually talking about, a, you know, 
apples, oranges, and grapefruits. But when we talk about African literature, we are simply putting everything into one box because we don't know where else to put it. And we're cramming the whole thing in and saying that Africa is a single experience. Anyone who has been to, you know, more than one country in Africa will tell you African is not a singular experience and the cultures of Africa are not remotely similar. And there is no reason why they should be. Did you think um, Kirkup was the right translator for this book? Like, what? how do you see, how can you define whether you think a translator is a good, the right fit for the material that they're, they're given? <sighs> oh, um, that's tough. So there are two separate issues here. Um, one is, I think that if as a translator, a text speaks to you and you can hear the voice within it and you believe you can do something with it, I have no problem with you doing that. I think that's fine. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Kirkup does a rather lovely job um, mm-hmm. here. Um, uh, there are some choices that he makes that I would not make, but then mm-hmm. you cannot criticize translation by saying, I wouldn't have done it that way. That's not about yeah. what That's like you know criticizing the way that Murray Pariah plays the Goldberg variations because you wouldn't have done it that way. <laughs> um, he can have a, you know, Various interpretations, various performances can can be done. There's a second question, which is um, one that has become more important to me because I have translated a number of West African authors and North African authors, and I'm currently translating the um, both um, uh, Ahmed Gauss um, and possibly going to translate Boubacar uh, Boris Diop. And these are languages and cultures and literatures that are important to me. But it is kind of important to ask whether in an ideal world, um, as a white man from, you know, Ireland, I am, you know, uniquely um, qualified to do this. And it is certainly true that literary translation, Anglophone literary translation, certainly, um, is very white. Um, yeah. It's actually more female than male, but um, it is very white, predominantly straight, mostly middle class. Um, and in large part, this is because translation is very, very precarious. Um, you can't guarantee that you're going to have a career. Um, but also, um, if you are, if you grew up in England, either in, in Britain as either um, second generation from uh, uh, British, um, Caribbean British or African British or whatever, uh, the chances that your surroundings uh, or your family are going to encourage you to study languages and to go into a career involving languages is probably lesser than it might be. So there is a very thorny question, exactly how much translators can and should appropriate and whether it is... Um, yeah, as I said earlier, I think that um, a translator who feels that they um, can uh, translate a voice and is prepared to put in the time, the attention and so forth to do so um, has a right to do that. But I would very much like to see um, more, not only more uh, people of colour who translate, but more L2 translators who will have a much greater sense of the rhythms of uh, their source language in their target language because they will have grown up speaking both languages. But while that is an important thing that we need to achieve, um, it was not achieved when James Kirkup was asked to translate this in 1971. 
Yeah. Uh, still yeah. less in 1954 when it was originally written. I mean, mm-hmm. the chances are very high that if Kirkup had not brought it to an editor, it would never have been translated. People do not go combing the backlists of sure. uh, obscure writers to see if they can find a lost classic. Most of what is published every year is front list. It is a book that has just been published in France, Korea, Germany, um, the Philippines, wherever. Nobody is trawling through the ancient languages and cultures of um, Cameroon, Gabon, Benin, to see if they can find. So that people who are most likely to take these to uh, an editor uh, or to a publisher is likely to be a translator. And in order to convince them, what they're probably going to have to do is to say, okay, this is what the novel is, and here is a sample I prepared earlier. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, the editor is probably going to say, why don't you do it, James? And (laughs) think, well, yeah, now now that you ask, I'd I'd love to do it, yeah. Um, Yeah. This is, you know, this is not something that we're going to resolve today, and it's not even something that I know quite how to resolve. There may come a time, and I'm not sure that, I would think it a bad thing when, you know, a white European translating um, an African novelist would be as incomprehensible as a white actor playing Othello would be these days. But mm-hmm. it's yeah. very long ago that white actors, you know, Orson Welles, Laurence Olivier, I mean, the great actors of a generation, perhaps two generations ago, everyone considered that this was reasonable. So that's a roundabout way of saying, I think Kirkup's done a lovely job. But I equally think that if we exclude novelists from Africa who translate themselves, like uh, Ngugi Wationggo, um, the great bulk of the literatures of Africa uh, are being translated into English, certainly, um, by people who are white and uh, and Anglophone um, by birth. Um, that's, you know... But the same is true, obviously, of the literatures of India and Asia and so on and so forth. Um, It will take a huge shift for that to change. And as I said, to some extent, uh, all translation is a form of cultural appropriation. Even if I am reading a novel of a a poor kid living in an HLM on the outskirts of Marseille, um, there is a form of cultural appropriation there. I did not grow up in a HLM. I grew up in a tiny little village in uh, on the west Isle, on the west of Ireland. But mm. acts of imagination are precisely that. Uh, you cannot, if you're going to cast an actor in a movie as a serial killer, um, please don't actually cast a serial killer. <laughs> um, there's a difference between identity and experience. So. These days, sure. uh, these days, it people would think twice before casting a non-trans actor in a in, in a trans role. Yeah, that is as it should be. Um, there was there was a time when uh, they would do so, but equally there was a time when the visibility of of trans actors was non-existent. Um, mm-hmm. This is a very long journey, which could take more than the hour we have here, and I'm probably yeah. the best person to have this conversation. <laughs> ask, ask Anton Hurry. He's very lucid and very intelligent and very funny about the matter. Oh, we would love to have him. Yeah, we would yeah. love to have him. We're taking a short break from the conversation to share a book recommendation sent in by one of our patrons. This is the very first one we're sharing, and appropriately, it happens to be an NYRB classic. And that is The True History 
of the first Mrs. Meredith and Other Lesser Lives by Diane Johnson, set in by Adam Dusky. Thank you, Adam. I have long wanted to read this book, not in the least because it is introduced by former guest and icon, Vivian Gornick. Ooh. If you would like to recommend one of your own books on the show or hear more episodes about Jane Austen, Roberto Bolaño, Moby Dick, cover design, etc., check out our Patreon. There is a link in the show notes. Thank you. Well, speaking of kind of cultural borrowings, you you mentioned the Western influences that are at play in this book. It opens with uh, an aphorism from Kafka, uh, and it's been compared to Alice in Wonderland. But kind of on the on the other side of that, the Nigerian author Wole Soinka mm-hmm. criticized this book for for that very reason, for kind of interrogating the European canon. Um, he thought the book had a lack of authenticity. So I was wondering kind of what you thought about the book being in conversation with the, the, the Western side of things rather than just committing to depicting the ordinary African experience, as I think Kamara has said that that was one of his goals. I think, I mean, I can understand where Wolisayinka was coming from, but <clears throat> so Wolisayinka is part of the first generation of novelists writing, um, in, you know, together with uh, Chino Achebe, um, is among the first playwrights, um, uh, Nigerian playwrights writing and novelists writing in English. And they were both, to some extent, influenced by the ideas of negritude of Senghor and Franz Fanon, and the idea that to write genuine African literature is to withdraw it entirely from the colonial experience and not to judge it by or compare it to uh, Western experience. Um, And I think that is a perfect perfectly valid um, approach to uh, what you want to write. However, as a writer, you do not get to make that decision for everybody else. You know, I mean, um, Mm -hmm. throughout the existence in the 20th century of what the Anglophone world calls modernism, not everybody cared. Not everybody, you know, I mean, um, I don't know that that Bartholomew ever met Cormac McCarthy and said, you really need to be writing postmodern, post-structuralist books. <laughs> you know, you've got enough of the horses in the Mexico shtick, you know. <laughs> you know, you're betraying an entire century of, ex- of formal experiment and structural and linguistic <laughs> programs um, by, you know, giving this, you know. You know. So I... I don't really have much time for the idea that literature proceeds in a single direction towards the apex where we are now. Um, I frequently have conversations where, you know, when you're trying as a translator to pitch a novel to an editor or to a reviewer or to whatever, and people will say, um, oh, well, you know, isn't this kind of a bit, you know, folkish or isn't this more in a sort of 19th century realist tradition or isn't this, you know, the rest of the world was not obliged to carry along, carry on the little experiment that, you know, we did through, you know, sort of Joyce and Wolf and then, you know, subsequently um, through Beckett and, and, um, and so on and so forth. Um, 
no, you know, we're entitled to do that, but not everybody has to go along with it. And certainly there are whole cultures, you know, not just languages, but whole cultures where none of these things have any meaning. Um, not only did they not go through that, 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 that notion uh, of modernism or postmodernism or post-structuralism is meaningless to the culture that they are trying to, to relate and the way in which they yeah. want to use language. Um, I mean, the traditions of um, West African literature, so Liberia, uh, Cameroon, uh, uh, Côte d'Ivoire, Nigeria, to some extent, are oral traditions. Um, they are closer to being Homeric than they are to being that of um, the novelist. And at that level, I mean, they are closer um, really to the beginnings of, of some Western novels. Um, but if you are going to communicate uh, an African experience, how do you communicate that to people who are utterly outside of the cultural framework and whatever. A lot of, um, you know, we've said, I, I said earlier that, you know, um, books will come from French into English or indeed any other language only if they're published in Paris. But also they first have to be in French. And there are many novelists uh, who do not write in French as their primary language. So, yeah. Uh, Boubacar Boris Diop writes in Wolof. He then translates himself into French and he is translated from French into. Richard Arimutu writes in Lingala uh, and these days, thankfully, is now translated from Lingala rather than being translated from his French version oh, of what he did. Um, no, to, to go back to what you were saying, yes, I think Soyinka has a point. I think the point that Soyinka is making is both artistic or aesthetic, but also political which is uh, African literatures do not have to and perhaps should not depend for their validity on cross-pollination with European literature. Mm -hmm. But I think what Kamara is doing here is interrogating Western literature in ways that are very interesting. Um, he is effectively interrogating the ways in which uh, Anglophone literature and Francophone literature um, have explored the idea of Africa. And again, capital A Africa, as though it were a single big country that, you know, mm. um, you know, it, as though it is literally simply a blank on the map on which you can write whatever, you know, here be mm -hmm. monsters, as it were. Um, so, you know, from that point of view, I think that what, uh, what Kamara is doing is hugely interesting. And I think that what he does, I mean, there is a very much um, uh, a Kafkaesque sense to this novel but the kafka sense of the novel um is not doing what kafka is doing which is um looking at the nightmare world of bureaucracy and the way in which it becomes impossible for an individual to make individual decisions or even to know necessarily where he stands within uh, um, that nightmarish bureaucracy here um the Kafkaesque nature a is played for farce more than anything else Mm -hmm. um, but also it becomes a metaphor for what lazy generations of Anglophone or Francophone um, Western writers made of the inscrutability, the impenetrability, the, you know, um, Africa as, you know, one single, you know, 
thick jungle that, you know, no one can understand and no one can. Um, so he's very much sort of um, sending all of that up. Again, I don't think literature can or should be prescriptive. Yeah. If you want voices to emerge, don't tell them what to sing. Um, you know, they will train almost certainly by singing things that they have learned and that other people have sung, but they will eventually go on to create songs of their own. Um, there's no, you know, I have spent now more than 30 years, you know, on the sidelines of publishing where, you know, people talk about um, uh, highbrow and middlebrow and lowbrow and nobrow. Um, <laughs> I have very little time for concepts like that. I mean, unless you're really just talking about sales figures, which means highbrow, we sold less than 5,000 copies. <laughs> we sold 100,000 copies, lowbrow, we're hitting a million next week. Um, <laughs> um, you can say, oh, yes, but certain types of literature strive to do more, to experiment more, either with form or with structure, or they communicate a world in this or that way. Up to a point, Lord Copper, as um, Evelyn Waugh would say. Um, actually, you know, much of what we now dismiss as genre literature uh, is precisely the literature of the 19th and 20th century that we hold dear. I mean, let's yeah. Dostoevsky is a crime novelist. Dickens is a crime novelist. Or at the very least, least he writes, uh, you know, what, what would now be called airplane novels. Yeah. Um, the works of Chandler and Pat Highsmith and um, and Dashiell Hammett are some of the most interesting artistic works of the 20th century. If you're going to dismiss them as detective fiction, then you've got a problem. Um, in the 19th century, Poe would have been dismissed in America for writing um, um, his fiction, but Baudelaire thought he was sufficiently fascinating that Baudelaire translated all of his work into French. Um, so this, mm. all of these things are movable. And I think the moment you start saddling a high horse, um, there's, I'm not with you anymore. You know, <laughs> um, you know, I will quite happily admit that the plots of Stephen King are some of the most preposterous ever committed to, um, <laughs> However, Stephen King's ability to create character, and particularly to, to create uh, characters who are children or adolescents, and to explore friendship and um, boyhood and manhood and whatever, is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that The Body, which eventually became um, Stand By Me as a film, is one of the most beautiful short stories written um, about childhood in, in America. Um, yeah. And... Have, you know, whatever you think of King's, you know, opus as a whole would happily sit next to any number of other short stories. These days, if you write, you know, Southern Gothic, you know, I mean, it's like, oh, well, this is just Southern Gothic. Well, you know, so, of course, is Carson McCullers. And so, of course, is, you know, early Truman Capote. And, you know, there's, a, again, this, this notion that somehow we're supposed to move on from things. What I think Kamara is trying to do, and it is difficult to know because actually there is very little surrounding hinterland to know. This book is so unlike uh, L'Enfant Noir as to be a, an utterly separate kind of book. Um, this is in no way intended to be 
um, autobiographical. It isn't supposed to be real. Um, whether you think it's supposed to be satirical or allegorical, whether you think it is engaging with Western literatures in order to subvert them, um, or whether it is trying to bolster itself using Western tropes in order to create um, African literature, is actually really a matter of opinion. I mean, yes, Clarence shows up in this unnamed country. He believes that by virtue of the fact that however poor, however destitute, however miserable he is, the fact that he has gambled away all of his money and can't pay his hotel bills um, doesn't mean he should not be in the service of the king, you know. Yeah. And, round, and round about here, we're in last king of Scotland territory, where again, that man puts you in a position to be in the service of the king. But his, his incomprehension about the way in which the country works is that of someone modern looking at, at, at something that they cannot understand. The king's appearance, when it comes, is so brief, it involves almost nothing. Um, the king uh, himself is probably an adolescent, um, and although you know he does have an aura about him, he's very slight, he's not very prepossessing, um, the king doesn't speak to his subjects, doesn't communicate with his subjects. Now, this, of course, would have been true, say, in the medieval kingdoms of Mali, in which masters of ceremonies always spoke for their kings. This is yeah. true, for example, in the kingdoms in, in the Ivory Coast. I, the novel I've just translated, Com Comrade Papa, a lot of it is set in the 19th century in the kingdoms of the Ivory Coast. And again, kings did not speak to people. Uh, the king had a standard bearer or a master of ceremonies, and they spoke to people. Uh, what the king said um, was interpreted and passed on. Uh, you had no idea what it was. But what then happens is um, a piece of picaresque. So you get, you have your beggar who promises that he will get him an introduction to the king. That's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> you get uh, the twin trickster film. Uh, the, Love them. Uh, the twin trickster figures. So they have, you know, names that obviously are have exactly the same number of letters and exactly the same letters, just arranged in a slightly different order. Bare, like, barely. <laughs> barely, yes. Uh, Nagoba Noaga. Uh, yeah. Um, but, um, and this notion of shape-shifting and of changing and not being able to tell things apart is not simply, do all black people look the same, but actually, culturally, are all of these people interchangeable? We will come to, we come to this again shortly afterwards. So, and here he is. He has nothing. He then loses further. He cannot pay the innkeeper uh, what he owes. So he um, uh, he leaves him the only thing he has of value, which is his greatcoat, and heads off only to immediately be arrested, brought back, and put before an entirely Kafkaesque court, where yes. he possibly understands. He doesn't. It's not simply that he doesn't understand what is being said. He doesn't understand the nature of how this is composed, how it works, who makes decisions based on what. Uh, and therefore, he is in no um, position to plea. There's a phrase in Kafka um, uh, called a dirigible argument, where Kafka, you know, in the trial says, you know, we can have this kind of defense, this kind of defense, this kind of defense. And somebody says, but what about the truth? Yeah, no, that's not. <laughs> 
uh, that, that's not where we are here. So, okay, um, he makes an attempt to flee, is brought back by the girl who claims she wants to help him. And of course, it is our trickster figures who have done this to him. They went back, they took the coat, they said they were taking it on his behalf. This is, But all of this, as you say, um, draws as much on the through the looking glass, more than Alice in Wonderland, uh, it draws on through the looking glass. The notion mm -hmm. that expectations are reversed, the notion that culturally uh, what you expect is um, the opposite of what you will be confronted with. And there is, I mean, one of the things that, uh, that Kamara does is um, uses quite a lot of, of repetition, and he uses repetition in order to create the sense um, of the repetitive experience. So the beggar has said he will take him south because the king often visits the south, so he will get to see the king. <laughs> <laughs> and so Clarence says, is this the south? And the beggar says, the south. The south is everywhere. Um, <laughs> okay, so this is a bit, and then, and through this entire thing, he has this sense that actually, they are effectively walking past the same four miles of jungle, yes. the same village every couple of hours. Now, is that true? I mean, given the beggar and given the trickster boys, it's perfectly possible that they are <laughs> a wild goose chase. Um, but is this not simply also Africa and the countries of Africa are impenetrable and everything looks the same and I don't understand? And so you have this... Mm -hmm. Um, it's all really about, you know, smells and, uh, I mean, the whole, you know, if anything, should, if any novel should have ever come with a scratch and sniff card, it is this. <laughs> That's such great. a good point. There's a, there's a, there's a, a, a short passage which I'm going to quote. Um, the odour was a subtle combination of flower perfumes and the exhalations of vegetable moulds. It was certainly <laughs> strange and even suspect fragrance, not disagreeable, not overwhelming so, but strange and suspect. <laughs> A little like the turbid odour of a hothouse full of decaying blooms. A sweetish, heady and disturbing odour, but one that was all enveloping rather than repellent. Curiously caressing. One hardly dares to admit it. Alluring. Insidiously alluring. It was an order in which the body and the spirit, but above all the spirit, were gradually and imperceptibly dissolved. And of course, precisely what he is doing here is what happens to Clarence is that he... And all of his Europeanness is not just stripped away so that eventually he is not simply penniless and naked and a slave, but all of his Europeanness is dissolved. Yes. So, you know, uh, everything that made him who he was is dissolved. And that leads to what is uh, an extraordinary sort of surprising um, ending. In Azania, the beggar, um, Clarence sees the beggar doing this sort of shady deal with um, the master of ceremonies for the local Nava. Um, and he doesn't know what's being sold. He is being sold. <laughs> and, again, and again, this notion of duplication uh, comes up with um, Akisi, his wife, Akisi. Yeah. So there is no wife, Akisi. Uh, every night, a different woman goes into his hut. Every woman, Every morning, a different woman leaves his hut and he is faintly aware of this i mean he's being drugged and he's and again this this heady perfume the everything about the heat the um uh, the overpowering smells 
so he he's vaguely aware that the woman who went to the well to get water and who didn't have a jug and has come back with a jug and is sort of the same woman but not the same woman and he almost yeah. did this and still even now having effectively um you know adapted is the wrong word i mean he is in precisely um the role that the black men predominantly but sometimes women who were brought back to europe in the 19th century would have been he is an object of curiosity uh he is an object who's considered by virtue of his whiteness to have sexual prowess which is something of course that uh, white Europeans always projected onto black men. Mm -hmm. All of these things are reversed. Um, so he, but he's curiosity. He is no different from um, the black, black peoples, both of West Africa and of Suriname and so forth, who were brought to the great exi exhibition and quite literally were part of the exhibit. You could go up to them and touch them. Um, and that is to some extent what he is. And yet here he is still absolutely clinging to uh, to what he's doing. Because, again, there are rumours that the king is going to be coming and uh, the, the beggar says, well, you know, obviously, as natives of this country, I am a native of this country, you are a native of this country. And he, of course, says, um, may the king preserve me. I am not a native of this country. Uh, preserve mm -hmm. me from ever being a native of this country. Because, of course, what he thinks of as a native to this country is not somebody who lives here or even who has now fathered multiple children here. <laughs> they basically factory farm him to make their babies. <laughs> he is a stud farm. You know, that, that night when he sort of wanders out and all these women come from all the huts, you can barely see where he's going, um, uh, and say, meet your son, meet your son, meet your son. <laughs> oh, boy, as well. I mean, how did that happen? <laughs> and he's still deeply clinging to this. And, of course, you know, without... You know, it's not much of a, a, a of a spoiler alert, but without entirely ruining the ending, by the point at which the king shows up, his problem is that his Europeanness uh, and the shedding of it has become a place of humility. He has lost everything. He believes himself to be unworthy, to be worthless, to be, etc. And this is not because this isn't because of he has been degraded to that point. It is because he no longer feels uh, everything that the, the ego that he had, which was posited on a whole bunch of assumptions about what it meant to be European, to be white, to be Christian, to be whatever, um, has been so utterly fragmented. Mm -hmm. uh, and he has become so much enthralled to yet not a part of this world that he feels unworthy of this king but shows no sign at this point of of wishing to pop back to belgium and um, no. have a chat with leopold um, not the nicest king ever to have had a colony in west africa one of my uh, favorite little things that sort of lead to his destruction of his ideal about how important he is to being seen by the king is this little, uh, he meets, I can't remember the name, but of the blacksmith that's making the axe. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who's going to be making the greatest axe to ever be made to try to present to the king. And he's like, the king won't even look at it. Like, if he looks at it, it's out of pity. It's out of just, like, pure patheticness that he will look at this perfect axe. And he's <laughs> like, what? No, no, no. I mean, 
So here he is. He says, I shall make this axe to present uh, to the king. Uh, it is the greatest axe ever made, as you say. I mean, the king will not look at it. If he does, we'll only be out of pity. Greater axes have been made before and will be. You just said this was the greatest axe. No. <laughs> you know, where's your confidence? And, of course, you have this looming sense. Because, again, there was this thing very early on in the book, after the first appearance of the king, so um, in public square, in Adramin, um, when the king disappeared, there were all these howls and screams and, you know, on the one hand, you know, he's told these are sacrifices of the wretched and those who are most despicable and they are put to death. And then there's somebody else telling him, no, these are the howls of the great, those who are most worthy of dying, they alone are sacrificed. And then he <laughs> says, what howls? I didn't hear any howls. <laughs> um, so when you've got a character late in the book, when the king's about to appear again, and he's making yeah. an axe... And you're Clarence, I would be thinking, what might they do? <laughs> and certainly the first time I read the book, I was thinking, where's the axe? I mean, right up to the end of the book, I'm thinking, right to the last page, I'm thinking, yeah, but what's going to happen? What's going to happen with the axe? Where's the axe? Where's the axe? You know, <laughs> uh, and I'm not going to tell anyone where the axe is. Um, but <laughs> yes, there is this. But again, it is part of this is, is about um, the relative value. Um, that that individual things have, and part of it, in part of it, uh, Kamara is drawing as he very much does in his uh, in his um, third novel um, on the ancient kingdoms of Mali and on the griot traditions of how you relate uh, the life of a king. So, for um, the first West African novel I translated was by Amadou Kuruma, um, um, called "Waiting for the Wild Beasts to Vote." Um, um, set in the Ivory Coast, and that is told by a griot to somebody who's quite clear, who is who is named as president dictator. Um, <laughs> but the tradition of the griot is that um, the song that he sings or the tale that he tells is of the feats of um, his president, who must always be the greatest man who has ever lived. Even though if he is deposed tomorrow and somebody is put in his place, he too will be the greatest man who has ever lived and his feats will have outshone. So there is this, you know, as I was saying earlier, within the griot tradition, which spans many of the cultures of, of West, West Africa. So the griot is, is um, somewhere between uh, a poet and a king's fool. The griot alone is allowed to make fun of the king in the way that a king's fool could. Um, but like the King's Fool in, in sort of medieval Europe, uh, is also to, able to speak truth to power, is able to say things that the king would not wish to hear. But the griot also takes on the role of what in Ireland we would call a shanachi. So he is a storyteller. So mm. he preserves the oral tradition of not only the kings, but of the huntsmen who tend to be next in line in terms of how important you are in, in, in culture and so on and so forth. And um, in part, what uh, Kamara is um, in doing this uh, is introducing us to what has and had for many centuries been the oral tradition of West Africa. Um, now, he is clashing it with, with Europe, but um, in a way that, say, Ngugiwa uh, Tiongo uh, does in, in some of his novels, but not in others. But no, I mean, that this notion that things can be more than one thing or less than one thing 
are the opposite of each other um, is deeply rooted within um, certain West African cultures and certainly within the Malinke mm-hmm. culture from which this comes and from, from which Kuruma also came. Uh, and that is evidence both of mystery and of magic. And in part, what is um, being um, exalted here is, I suppose, I mean, the, the do we talk about the ending? Because it is such an unresolved... Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think we can talk about yeah, the ending. Yeah, we always just let people know about, like, if you don't want to know the ending specifically. Tune out here, yes. It's not going to... The novel ends. The king arrives. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the only possible ending. Like, we were talking about that last night. Yeah. Well, the king had to arrive. But, of course, when the king arrives, Clarence is in his hut, naked. He won't come out. He's not worthy. He wants nothing to do with this. Uh, he should not be in the presence of the king. And, of course, you know, the novel in French, Le Regard du Roi, the gaze of the king. Uh, it is the fact that the king is looking at you that confers power, that confers importance, that confers status. But he doesn't wish to uh, to do this, not be uh, and you know not because because he's unworthy, because he has come to a point where, having had the hubris at the beginning to believe that he could serve the king, he now doesn't believe that he's worthy to be in the, in the king's presence, in case the king should look at him. Um, but he, almost against his will, he is drawn out of his hut, and almost against his will, he moves through the crowd as though magnetically pulled. Mm-hmm. And pauses mm. before the king, and the king looks at him. And the king looking at him is the fulfillment of what this novel is, and yet is mysterious because we have no sense of what this means. Um, and the king opens his cloak and says, Did you not know that I would that that I would that I have been waiting for you? So this is a strangely mysterious concept. Why would he have been waiting for Clarence? We have no, nothing in this book has led us to think, you know, that Clarence is somehow special. And so the, in this moment, the king takes on, as it were, a, a Christ-like uh, messianic uh, yeah. appearance. So he presses um, his lips to the part of the king's chest where his heart is beating. All of this has this sort of strange Christian symbolism, but it comes at the end, not of a spiritual journey or a pilgrimage that leads to this. I mean, unless the realization that Clarence required was his utter abasement and his utter, utter worthiness. Yes. But it's there, I mean, the, as you know, the, um, the, the novel has very much been criticized by failing to to give itself an ending, by failing to encapsulate something to to as it were say say something and while it is saying many things it is not saying one thing i mean rereading it recently in english i came to the ending and thought somehow this is the only possible ending and yet somehow this is a deeply frustrating ending because i need to know what happens i need to know what this means and there we don't have that. We, 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 are, we are not allowed to know uh, what this means. And it is, you know, it's like the Star Child sequence in 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's just, <laughs> you know, in that sense, of course, it, it is atypical both of the sort of Western novels about Africa, which are about incident. They are about 
wars. They are about self-discovery. They are about going up the Congo in order to kill Colonel Kurtz. They are about a conflict between um, what is Western and what is African, which either leads to death and destruction for Africans, more likely, or spiritual enlightenment for Westerners, less likely, um, or possibly both. This refuses to actually play that game at all. It gives you a journey that is both physical and to some extent sensual rather than spiritual. I mean, Mm -hmm. you feel it, you can smell it, it is around you all the time. The way in which Kamara writes a sense of place and a sense of smell and uh, and the feel of fabric and of, of, of plant life and whatever is extraordinary. There is a numinous sense, a sense of a godhead somewhere, but that is nowhere um, directly in evidence. This is not a novel uh, that tries to explore any of the um, major religions of, of West Africa uh, or you know the Orishas uh, as gods or anything else. So it is not as though it is pitting Christianity against some form of paganism. In fact, in this, um, the unnamed country is, its, is itself. I mean, it, it is almost a character in itself. And yeah. what, um, what Clarence is embracing is this thing in itself, which is represented um, not by, you know, a king who is a warrior, who is a whatever, but by someone who is frail and weak. And clearly, as we know from the only sentence that he has in the whole thing, deeply compassionate. Yeah. I guess while we wrap up, we should just bring it back to this idea that how you know strange this book is, how it's playing with Western themes, the, the controversy around it, that you uh, described as um, bullshit. <laughs> well, like, where, where do you see the credence of these accusations and like where, it, why would it, that come up so strongly in that way? Why well, is this okay. um, So, as I said, Kamara is unusual uh, and his education. Here is a young boy who originally trained with his father as a smith and as a silversmith uh, and a goldsmith. Um, who was educated in French, but we're talking about the standard of French education for children um, in Guinea at the time. He does go and he does study in um, France, but he studies engineering in France. Yeah. He doesn't study literature. He doesn't, you know, study language. He doesn't, you know, etc. cetera. Uh, and so you do come to a point where you have someone saying, well, how did he write? How did he write these books? And the first uh, and the most understandable would be L'Enfant Noir, because that is, at least to some extent, uh, autobiographical. Um, the experiences being recounted in it are very much those that that Kamara would have had growing up, uh, surrounded not only by his family, but by, as it were, a, a clan-like family, which is which the Malinke, uh, Malinke families are very large. But... I think the problem um, then is the the sudden leap to a novel that is not only very different, but that is very much contains much more artifice, and mm-hmm. uh, the king does. I mean, it is playing with a lot of Western tropes. It is quoting not only quoting from Kafka, but using Kafka as a model for a certain sequences within it. It is using um, a level of vocabulary in French that would be 
uncommon in um, someone who was educated in Guinea at that time, and actually would have been reasonably uncommon even for your average French um, person born and raised in France and, and educated in France. So actually, the I mean, most of the proof, as it were, is, you know, whether someone like Kamara would have, you know, um, understood or been able to use words like uh, lutine, which is a, a very old word um, uh, meaning um, to harass someone or bother them, mm. or is the word uh, piriforme, which means pear-shaped, given that uh, pears don't grow in Africa. Um, and you can, you can make a fairly solid argument by saying, linguistically, what are the odds that? The trouble is that black swans don't exist until you find a black swan. Yeah. You know, black swan theory posits that, you know, the moment you find a black swan, then the statement that all swans are white is proved false, even if there's only one black swan. Um, there is nothing that we know or that can tell us that Kamara did not read widely in his own uh, in his own time, didn't study literature, even though he was working as a mechanic. I mean, I have both read and translated bits of Rabelais. I have never studied Rabelais, you know, in any major context. Mm -hmm. uh, I learned much of the French that I have uh, in the way uh, most people do, simply by reading books, and or indeed all of the Spanish that I know by reading books and by talking and, and whatever. It is amazing what it is that you can end up um, grasping. So it feels, I understand it, but I think people are too ready to sort of accuse him of imposture or the, okay, so there is, it is known that uh, a number of Belgian missionaries who lived in Guinea and Cameroon and the Congo did write, and they did write under African names, and they wrote books that were intended to be read by uh, the African communities yeah. in which they were living. And therefore, the, the purported writer of this would um, be a Belgian missionary called Suyi. But if that's what he wanted to do, why write this? <laughs> this would not be immediately accessible to the people in the communities in which he was living. I mean, they wouldn't get the references to Kafka. They wouldn't get the, you know, I mean, so I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying on the balance of probabilities, I think it's unlikely. Mm -hmm. And I think at the end of the day, uh, what we're really ending up with, um, though it's much closer to us in time, is, you know, did Shakespeare write his plays or were they written by a completely different person called Shakespeare? <laughs> yeah, again, you know, Shakespeare has an extraordinary vocabulary. I mean, Shakespearean English includes many thousands of words that are used in not just the common English of Elizabethan England, but in the common English used by anyone now. Yeah. Um, he didn't get that through university. Um, there weren't very, there were only two universities at the time. Um, <laughs> and he didn't get, you know, he got it by being an avid reader, by stealing left, right, and center from everybody. You know, I mean, if you take if you take uh, literature and translation out of the equation, then most of um, uh, then most of Shakespeare's plays immediately disappear. You know, 
most of his plays, not, not most, but many of his plays, in, if we exclude the British historical plays, are based on stories that he read in translation from Italian, from Danish, from French, from German, from, you know, whatever. Um, the fact that he read and therefore created for himself that vocabulary in order to be able to create that corpus of work um, is simply what he did. Can I say with certainty that Kamara did this? No, but I would want a lot more proof than how would he know this word and isn't this a bit of an odd expression to be using if you're... And while I don't think there is any conscious racism behind it, I do think that there is uh, a sort of sense of how can a poor kid from, you know, a yeah. destitute country in West Africa have such a command of... Um, and I think you need to interrogate the beginnings of that premise before you go much farther. Certainly, if all you're going to do is look at it stylistically and say, how likely is it that, you know, these words, these phrases, this structure, this whatever, um, these are things that are unknowable um, yeah. because we, ha we have not got enough information about him as a human being what he read, where he went, you know, uh, and so forth, um, to concretely say one or the other. I have to say that, you know, if it happens to be a novel by a Belgian monk um, living in the 1950s in um, in Guinea, it's a surprisingly good novel by a Belgian monk. <laughs> it's almost unbelievable either way, whoever, whoever yeah. did it. Again, why would the Belgian monk not come forward? Uh, I mean... Uh, <laughs> They, they, the theory is not only that he did not write this, but that he only partially wrote The Black Child and didn't write any of this or any of the other two novels. But in that case, why use him as a figurehead? I mean, if you take... Okay, so there is a case for this. So if you take Roman Guerry, wonderful 20th century French novelist, in 19, the 1970s decided he didn't like what he was doing anymore and he wanted to write completely different novels. And so he created a, a writer called Émile Ajar, whose name Ajar was, you know, quite deliberate. And under that name, he wrote four novels. Um, the first of which is uh, Gros Calin, and the second of which, uh, La Vie de Soi, won the Goncourt. The trouble is that you're not allowed to win the Goncourt twice, and he'd already won it as Roman Gay. Oh. So he had to get someone a distant relative, a second cousin or something like that, to pose as him and go and pick it up. And <laughs> while, while there were many people who said, well, I'm not really sure that this person wrote this book and I think maybe it was, you know, we didn't know until afterwards. I mean, yes, after he died, he wrote a piece about uh, why he had created um, the pseudonym and, and um, what he used it for. And indeed, the novels that he wrote under that pseudonym were very different. I don't know what's gained here. I mean, I can kind of see what Kamara gains by being the writer of these novels in that, um, certainly within France at the time, Le Regard du Roi was an important novel. Um, but I don't, you know, if you go with the qui bono, who benefits? Um, I don't see who benefits here. And I don't see how, I don't see how it makes sense. So, you know, I didn't, I'm not particularly convinced by the analysis, even though I think the analysis of the text is a strong one. And I can absolutely understand why somebody making that analysis would think, how likely is it that? 
But I think that's all you're ever going to say is how likely is it that. And it's not enough of a basis to attempt to discredit uh, him as a writer. Uh, and by doing so, of course, discrediting the book, you know, this is this is not, you know, James Frey um, deciding that his two and a half hours in prison was, in fact, three and a half months in, uh, in you know, lockup or, you know, whatever in a million little pieces. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it, it's odd that it came so late. Mm-hmm. Nobody questioned it at the time. It's odd that it comes specifically here. I mean, it is not as though there is a dearth of of writers um, in Francophone uh, West Africa at the time. I mean, the early novels of Kuruma would have been published in the late 1950s and the 1960s. So I'm not quite sure. And, you know, I I fully accept that uh, the researcher who, uh, when she reread uh, Kamara, thought, there's something about this. This is that that's odd, but yeah. I didn't find it odd when I originally read it, and I don't have enough information really to say yay or nay. Mm-hmm. But given that I don't have enough information, and the information she's given me, while fascinating, just makes me think, oh, that's really interesting linguistically. But then mm-hmm. I know a whole bunch of things linguistically that I shouldn't know just because you know because yes. reasons. Uh, and we are all, depending on what kind of sponge you are for languages, you could have picked up any number of things in any number of ways. It doesn't strike me as salient enough to strike down somebody's authorship. Yeah. Nor, you know, nor is she saying that, you know, uh, the, there's such an ex- a crucial difference. You know, why wouldn't he have read Kafka when he was, you know, in French? Um, while he was living in France, you know, Kafka was published in French. He was quite famous, actually. You know, he wasn't he wasn't one of those lesser known European novelists that nobody was talking about. Although, of course, had anybody listened to what Kafka wanted, they would have burned everything when he died. Um, if, if, Max, if Max had listened Max to him, if, if Max had listened to him and burned everything that was unpublished, we'd have as much, as much of his work as we would have Emily Dickinson if if her sister had listened to her. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank God they didn't, right? <laughs> thank God they did. Absolutely. Mm. But who cares about the wishes of a dying man, like uh, or dying woman? Just like them all. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if, yeah, if that person happens to be Kafka or Emily Dickinson. <laughs> um, but yeah, on the on that controversy, it just seems like very unfortunate that you have a book, most more than likely written by a black author about a white man stripped of his delusions, and critics look at that and say, "We're going to strip." that black author of his authorship. Yes, it, it, it is It is an unfortunate way to go around things to say, you know, here is, you know, a dissection of, of Europeanness, one that fully understands and attempts to integrate Europeanness. Uh, and what you're saying is that, you know, either a black man or this black man could not have written this book. That isn't as big a gotcha as you might think, you know. <laughs> People read books, you know. <laughs> uh, and, you know, if he had never lived outside of Guinea, then I would say yes. The chances that there was, you know, a lending library that had Kafka in either French or Malinke is pretty small. Um, but, you know, he lived in Paris. He um, he spent time abroad. For all we know, um, he spent his every waking hour attempting to hoover up all the literature that he possibly could. That's what I did when I lived there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, um so yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's 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 a not very helpful side note to what was. I mean, when I first read the book, nobody had ever raised this as a concern. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and indeed, when when 
James Kirk have translated it. Nobody had read it then. Yeah, uh, yeah. No. The, you know, this is uh, this novel had existed for half a century before somebody said, Miss, <laughs> um, I've got a problem. Uh, so I, I only actually delved into it because I was going to be doing this. Um, because at the time, I just thought, look, I read the book. I thought it was a wonderful book. You know, that was mm. then. Um, I don't need somebody to remove it from my pantheon of great novels written in French. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully that doesn't diminish the fact that it's a startlingly original. Um, so good. And it's, it's an interesting counterpoint to so much of what we've read in school, been forced to read about, you know, these African narratives. Um, but it's also so entertaining and laugh it's, out loud funny in parts. No, it is. It is I mean, again, um, you know, I have, there is a terrible tendency um, to treat literature, particularly literature and translation, as though it were, you know, like a multivitamin, you know, that yes. you take, <laughs> yeah. makes you a better person. Actually, you know, it needs to do all the things that any kind of fiction does, mm-hmm. laugh, cry wonder i mean the the extraordinary thing here because of course i hadn't read it in english before um is there's an extraordinary essay that tony morrison wrote yes yes great introduction which beautifully looks at the way in which uh kamara is attempting to um to look at and yet subvert uh westernism mm-hmm. and western and particularly um the the colonial narratives of the multiplicity of Africa, where we go in, we see things, we do things, we relate their history by making it ours, and in doing so, we entirely warp and twist it. You know, as we, as colonial powers did, not only there, but you know, in Asia and in the Americas and and, and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But no, it is a wonderful novel, which is both incantatory and dreamlike, and yet, as you say. Um, wet yourself funny um this is is an unusual combination yeah very much so do you have any other final thoughts that you want to share on the book no i mean go out and buy it um (laughs) do not do not do not borrow it from the library camera might be dead but james kirk james kirk might still be alive i don't know oh he's And, and anyway um new york review books could do with the money um and you make the thing is that independent publishers make money when you buy books, you know. Um, and independent publishers are the way the big five are these days, uh, the only publishers who are making even the slightest attempt, uh, to say what is interesting about literature as opposed to what will sell, yeah, you know, quarterly growth. Mm-hmm. quarterly growth and books as product you know I, I i've spoken to people who call themselves editors and certainly people who call themselves publishers who refer to books as product you know this is not you know a block of of, of margarine this is not you know these, are not, these things are not interchangeable you know it's, i remember years ago um when i was starting out as a translator and i was at some literary thing you can tell it was like warm white wine and um, I'm talking to an editor. Uh, he said, oh, what do you do? Uh, I said, well, you know, these days I, I translate. I translate uh, fiction. He said, oh, we did a book in translation once. It didn't work. <laughs> oh, my God. Thereby resuming all of the cultures in the world all to one book that didn't work. Um, and it's... 
And it's not it's their not fault it didn't work. Uh, no, yeah, no. it's the books. Of course, it's not. And also, not all books, you know, probably 90% of all the books published in any language, in any territory, anywhere in the world, don't work. <laughs> uh, most of them are disappointing. You know, most of the people I know who are authors, um, you know, do not live from the fact that they are authors. They have day jobs because, you know, you don't generally make it, uh, even if you're critically acclaimed. So uh, this is the problem. Uh, there's, a, there's a very good um, book of essays published last year called Violent Phenomena, 21 Essays About Translation, uh, which is very much about Anglophone hegemony and the way in which it sidelines certain cultures, certain kinds of translators and certain kinds of translation and, and the stories that are, that are chosen. But it comes from a point where if culturally you are dominant, you don't need to look much at other cultures. They need to look at to, to yours because they need to understand it. But you don't, you no longer have the curiosity mm -hmm. uh, of wanting to be part and to explore and to understand other cultures because you feel you don't have to. I mean, it reminds me of the first time I went to Vegas, uh, <laughs> five years ago, I stayed at the Venetian. Okay. My last day, I don't know if you've ever been to the Venetian or indeed to Vegas. Uh, it's like Disneyland of alcohol um, <laughs> um, and casinos. Um, my last day at the Venetian, I'm like wandering through. So they got a shopping mall, mm -hmm. which designed like the Grand Canal in Venice mm -hmm. and it has gondoliers going up and down. Okay. And I'm buying something to send home to my mom, you know, so that she knows that I'm still alive. And I'm talking, <laughs> and I'm talking to the woman uh, who's selling it to me. And I said, do you, you know, do you enjoy working? And she said, yeah, yeah. No. I said, you know, have, uh, have you ever been to Italy? She said, no, no. I said, would you not like to go? She said, why? I can see it all here. <laughs> oh, my God. There is this sense that, you know, but, you know, we've got our own, you know. Um, yeah, I've been to Epcot. But this, but this, you know, this, is exactly, this is exactly the same as the, you know, city built in the Adriatic that was once its own kingdom and has been around, you know, for, you know, um, <laughs> years, you know. You know, same thing, yeah. you know, with the shopping malls. Um, <laughs> I think that... Um, What's important is, um, as readers and for those who work as editors and as publishers and who engage with literature, not being interested in what is outside of yourself and outside of your culture is puzzling beyond belief. Mm. I mean, here I have heard, you know, I have a friend who's an editor who, when he wanted to publish a Douglas Stewart a novel, Shuggy Bain, was told, it's a bit Scottish. For God's sake, you know, I mean, Britain is supposed to be, you know, Scotland is supposed to be part of Britain. Um, or it's a bit gay. Do you know what? Um, it is possible to be, you know, interested in Scottish gay books without either being gay or Scottish. Uh, and in fact, of course, the book had already been acquired by an American editor at that point. And again, you know, we have a tendency and... This comes sometimes from translators, but more often from editors, uh, of looking to world literature. This is a phrase I loathe. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's like it's like the world food section in Ooh. a supermarket. Yeah, it's brutal stuff. That's, that's where you'll get the, the the weird stuff like your nori seaweed and your ketchup manis and whatever. Whereas stuff like 
lasagna and pasta and noodles and in this country, Indian curry, they're all in the English section. Because <laughs> we don't think of those as foreign anymore. Um, but now the problem with the concept of world literature is that what we seem to want from it is what I want you to do in this novel is to tell me the entire story of your country so I never have to read another novel from your culture. Mm -hmm. So if you're writing as Gael Fai was, you know, a novel and you were born in Rwanda, what people want you to write about is the genocide. Um, if you were born during the genocide, oh, well, you know, I mean, your mother must have been born. You know what I mean? And we want, or a certain part of us wants, literature uh, from other cultures to explain that culture to us. That is not the purpose of literature, any more than the literature written in English is supposed to explain the culture of what it means to be Irish or Scottish or English or Liverpudlian or from Seattle. Um, it's supposed to be what it's supposed to be. Um, you tell the stories that you can tell. So yeah, they're, they're the great, pro or we live in a, in a culture very specifically an Anglophone culture that is hugely resistant to works in other languages. I mean, as you as you will know, if you if you care much about cinema, you know, when when you find an American director who really really likes a foreign movie, he does not distribute that movie or campaign to have it, you know, and award it at the Oscars. He buys the rights to it and remakes it, and so Abrilo Rojas becomes Vanilla Sky, um, and you know. And there are a whole, there's a whole raft of these things where you're thinking, you seem to be completely missing the point here. Um, <laughs> the way in which you open yourself to other cultures, if you thought, oh my God, this is an amazing movie, you don't think, why did I just remake it into a completely same movie, uh, only with Englishness, with added Americanness? Um, why can't you actually assume that other people like you would watch Abril Los Ojos and think, my God, this is an amazing movie. I need other people to watch this movie. Mm -hmm. But, you know. <laughs> but unfortunately, you know, uh, for, for better or worse, we were born in, you know, I live for the day when the dominant culture in the world will be, well, it's bound to be either um, Indian or more likely Chinese. And we're all going to have to gen up not only on, on, on Mandarin, but also on, you know, all of the literature, all the slang terms, all the regionalisms, because, you know, otherwise we won't get anywhere in the world. <laughs> you know, people say, well, do you really think that could happen? Well, of course it could. You know, I mean, until the 17th century, the uh, lingua franca of everywhere in the world was Latin. Mm -hmm. um, the lingua franca of um, Russia and all the countries in, the, uh, in, in Eastern Europe <clears throat> until the middle of the 20th century was French. Um, you know, I mean, could it happen again? Oh, yeah, but there's the internet, there's this, that, and the other. Believe me, if the Chinese had a chance to destroy everything, <laughs> wipe all the English away and all the Americanness away and just fill it with Chineseness, I think they, I think they should do it. <laughs> it would, I say ring it, it would, on. Let's go. Yeah. Would, I mean, I say that, but actually I, I would need to do a little bit of study before that. Before that. <laughs> <laughs> because otherwise I could feel myself, find myself at a distinct disadvantage. But no, there is, as I said, the notion, this, this preposterous notion that people have that, that society has, when we use evolution not to mean that things have happened and some things have emerged from others, but to think that this is a pyramid structure and we are at the top. Mm -hmm. And that 
therefore the culture we live in the morals that we have the norms that we have are somehow both um better more worthy of value more generalized than those of countries around the world you know um i mean english is not even the what is it the fourth most spoke, spoken language in the world something like that and yes of course it is a lingua franca but as a lingua franca what it is is everybody's second language well lots of people's second yeah rather than their first but since we don't expect anglo-american literature to be you know homogenous why would we expect literature and translation to be homogenous what we should want is as many things to surprise and dazzle us as we can possibly find and the very fact that like this book a very small fraction of uh, books have been translated um from anywhere in africa and this is this is one of the greats yeah mhm well that's why we thank you so much for sharing it with us and our listeners and for coming on the show it's been a pleasure Thank you for tuning in to Unburied Books. Our theme music is composed by John Hookstra. Join us again in two weeks when we discuss Blue Lard by Vladimir Zorokin. Much anticipated. Huge episode. Huge. Huge.